Hi there, and welcome to episode 35, yes, episode 35 of the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. Aaron, what have we got on tap for today? Well, we're good. we got some interesting things on tap today. A couple of anniversaries, uh, uh, a talk about an, a single that changed music, um, for better and for worse. And uh, an artist who demonstrated two, well, one really easy way to torpedo your career at its height. Well, that's right. Uh, this guy was the master. At, oh, uh, it, it, you can take lessons. Yeah. yeah, how to wreck your career in two easy steps, as we were saying before. <laughs> so are you ready for a road trip? I'm always ready. And the weather's nice. So yeah, let's go. All right, let's go. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes. Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. So to kick off our road trip, we're going to go to December 12th, 1957 in Hernando, Mississippi. And Aaron, this is one of those stories that we just couldn't ignore. It was was too great of a story to overlook, even though we've talked about it a little bit before on this show. You know, you can never say enough about this. Yeah, so let's go uh, pay a visit to our good friend, Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, Tony, there's a lot of ways to destroy your career. Um, You could say the wrong thing at the wrong time. You could be a blatant racist, for example. Or you could marry your 13-year-old cousin. Um, That that, that just about does it. I don't know. There's a lot of other ways, I suppose, if you're a murderer and things like that. But, wow, this this gentleman really went out of his way for this one, don't you think? Well, he did. And uh, not only did he marry his 13-year-old cousin, but he actually committed bigamy. (laughs) because he was still married at the time legally so of course we're talking about jerry lee lewis and his marriage to myra gale brown and it was on this day this week in 1957 that they tied the knot in hernando mississippi did he just forget he was already married well you know what i've got i'm going to tell you something crazy is it was this. This is the second time. How old's Jerry Lee at this point? Twenty-one, maybe. This is his yeah. third third marriage. Third marriage, yeah. Third marriage, second time. Aaron committing bigamy. Are you? I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he with his second marriage, he wasn't <laughs> legally divorced yet from his first wife. So, how fitting for Jerry Lee Lewis. Is he just impatient? Like, is, I just, or is he, does he think he's above the law? I'm just curious. Like, I don't. I, I'm trying to understand this. Something else, isn't it? But yeah, it was that. That was the second time that he had committed bigamy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, you know what? I mean, if look, he's consistent, if nothing else. Oh, that's right. And you know what? He was so consistent that he tried eight times. I think he's on marriage number eight now, isn't he? Yeah, but you know, you got to give it to him. Every year, like his first marriage, was, which lasted a year. The second marriage lasted four. This one with his cousin lasted five. So, you know, he was... I mean, if it was a, 
it was a Netflix. It would be on that chapter to what? Eight, episode eight of season 15? I don't know. <laughs> oh, you know, Tony, if you look at what's happening to his career up to this point, right? He has three top 10 singles up to February of 1958. We're talking about classics, you know, Great Balls of Fire makes it to number two, whole lot of shaking going on is number, you know, makes it number three, Breathless, number seven. And then guess what, Tony? After this whole schlamazel comes out, he uh, he's not charting that high anymore, you know? Well, no, and but it was, you know, it wasn't until he went to London, England, though, that this became a big story right so he was supposed to be the heir apparent to elvis because elvis was taking off joining the military and here was the perfect opportunity for jerry lee lewis to to take over the throne to take over the crown and uh, sam phillips of course had sold elvis's rights and had a gold mine on his hand with in his hands with jerry lee lewis and um Jerry Lee, they, you know, they kept the marriage pretty hush-hush, uh, but he insisted that Myra come with him to London for a 30-day tour in England. And his Sam told him, and uh, all of his people told him, you can't do that, Jerry Lee, not a good idea. But he insisted and arrived at Heathrow and was in a scrum with the press. And someone pointed out, uh, who is that young girl with you? And she happily chimed in that I'm Jerry Lee's wife and it all unraveled from there. <laughs> so to get her excuse from school, did Jerry Lee write the note or did her parents? <laughs> <laughs> it is just open season on this topic, isn't it? it is. <laughs> I had to ask because I'm thinking, hmm, who's the legal guardian at this point? But anyways, yeah, I mean, kind of, there was a consequence to him doing that press conference. Am I not wrong? Or am I not right? Well, there was a huge consequence. So first of all, the story exploded in the British press. And his first concert, because this was supposed to be a huge deal, this 30-day tour that Jerry Lee was going to put on. And they were treating him just like Elvis would have been treated. But at the concert, of course, all of a sudden, it people caught wind of the story in England and ticket sales were pretty poor and people were cat calling him on stage. And of course he was getting angry. And <laughs> I think how far did he get into the tour? Only three shows, right? And, and I think he, had, so, yeah. he had to go home because yeah. they debated in parliament. Like, what do we do with this guy? Um, is he committing some kind of crime here? And, but you know, it was Myra's response that didn't help right during that scrum when, uh, they were asking her how old she was and and they lied and he lied and said she was 15. Well, that makes all the difference. Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the reporter, uh, didn't believe Jerry Lee and did some digging and they found out she was 13, but she had said during that press conference that, well, you know, you can get married when you're 10 back home, as long as you can find a husband, right? Which Oh my goodness! Oh, it's a, it's like a, it, it it's literally a Simpsons episode. Absolutely. You, you, know, you, you know, what's his name? Cletus the Slackjaw local yokel. Like it's just what kind of comment is that to make? Yeah. I I, 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 I I'm at a loss. And here's the thing: Jerry Lee had, and I guess has, a great degree of talent. Oh, unbelievable talent! Right. I mean, he's got a great voice. 
I mean, his piano playing, he's no classical pianist, but boy, can he pound those pianos. And um, he comes from, I mean, look at who his cousins are, Jimmy Swigert and Mickey Gilley. I mean, mm -hmm. what, a, what a talented family. And say what you will about Jimmy Swigert, he plays piano fantastic, by the way. Yeah, playing, I, I, I didn't know that until a little while ago. That's a, that's a pretty cool fact. Yeah, he was good. He was really good. I mean, he, he unfortunately, he decided to use his powers for the power of evil. But, um, you know, he was a good... And Mickey Gilley is the only one of the three that kind of had no scandals. Mm -hmm. Other than Urban Cowboy, which we can discuss, you know, <laughs> debate whether that's a scandal or not. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, his his remuneration went from, you know, he, his appearance fee was $10,000 in 1958 dollars ten thousand dollars isn't yeah. that unbelievable and two weeks later because the story followed him back home to america he couldn't even get 250 bucks for a gig and 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 if this happened today he'd be on the mask singer <laughs> <laughs> i've never seen that show by the way so i neither i just i just know of it i don't watch oh, it <laughs> yeah yeah i i've heard of it a couple of times but i'm not a i could you, i could, don't have tv so but did you know that johnny lydon johnny rotten was on it i did not know that really two weeks ago he oh. was uh the court jester and he sang schools out by alice cooper oh got voted off and it was i i and uh, the day after that i started putting my um, sex pistols collection up on ebay no just kidding <laughs> <laughs> oh so sad anyway poor jerry lee and he never really rebounded from it he never he never kind of got back the fame he once had at all not even close no and they were thinking that he might be at least as big as elvis before this all happened that, that was that was the the thinking and it just totally uh derailed his career and and he had a little brief bit of success on the country charts in the 60s but certainly nothing compared to what he was doing in uh, the oh, 1950s you can't compare his his country chart success. I mean, we're talking mid twenties. I mean, his highest charting single in the country charts really was in 1958. But after that, he he and in sixties he had a few minor hits, and then the seventies. No, I mean, he just he just couldn't. I, I how do you rebound from that? I mean, that's kind of a bit of a stigma to kind of live down, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And now, you know, you've been talking about charts a little bit. So what was on the charts that week? Did you pick the, I think, the singles charts, right? I did. And and, and I'll tell you, I did a couple of things just because I, I know you're a big fan, as am I. And I thought it was interesting. But the, the top five U.S. singles that week was number five, uh, the, the Rays with Silhouettes. I love that song, Silhouette by the Rays. Elvis Presley, Jailhouse Rock. Uh, three. Uh, now this is an interesting song. Ernie Freeman with a song called "Raunchy," which was the song that George Harrison played to John Lennon to audition to get into the Quarrymen. Oh wow! So there you go. And he played it note for note perfect. Number two is one of my all-time favorites, and you know I'm saying that with tongue firmly planted in cheek. <laughs> Pat Boone with "April Love," and number one. I, this I, I gotta be honest with you, this shocked me i saw the song you send me and of course i went to sam cook right mm -hmm. but it wasn't sam cook who made number one with it it was Teresa brewer famous for put another nickel in in that nickelodeon oh my yeah it's a pretty rough version um number 12 that week was peggy sue by buddy holly which i thought was kind of cool just because i think that's cool and tony back in the 50s 
Well, this format continued on in the in, in the UK, in Europe, and Mexico well into the, the 80s. But there's something called an EP. Do you know what an EP is? I do. Okay, so it's a four-track single. It's a seven-inch. It's got two tracks on each side, right? Yeah. The top five EPs that week, Elvis had three of them. Um, number one was the Jailhouse Rock EP. Number two was his Christmas album EP. And number four was the Loving You EP. And um, they used to call the EP the Poor Man's Album because, <laughs> because you could pay. It cost the same as a single, and you got four tracks instead of two. So I just thought that was interesting that Elvis had the – he was dominating the EP charts and, and soon to be dominating the singles charts as well. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fascinating. And um, what a what a time period that was, you know. Um, exciting in some ways, eh? So exciting. And, and the world was just waiting for Jerry Lee to take it over, and he blew it. Boy. He could have. He could have. He had the talent. And, and, and I have to ask you this question before we move on. Of the – we talked about the Million Dollar Quartet last week, right? Yes. So is Roy Orbison – um, who was in this? Oh, so it was El- it was Elvis, Elvis, Jerry Lee, Carl Perkins, Carl Perkins, and Johnny, Johnny Cash. Cash. Yeah. Okay. Roy, Roy came in later. Yeah. So of those four, did you would you have thought that Jerry Lee would outlive like even someone like no? Okay. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, seriously, he's still going. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and uh, he was supposed to release an album right before COVID came out. So I wonder whatever I wonder what came of that. Uh, I'm sure it'll come out once, you know, because I think he'd want to promote it. But um, well, he put an album a couple of years ago and had Ringo sing a song with him on it, which mm-hmm. I own. It's called Last Man Standing. Not bad album, but odd, but not bad. So are you ready to go to uh, our next destination? We're going to be talking about uh, pre-rock and roll here. We're going to be talking about two uh, famous musicians who died on the same day, one year apart, Uh pretty interesting story for both so are you ready to do this i am so ready yes all right let's go so here we are outside of kansas city missouri and it is december the 15th 1943 and the reason we're here is because this is the day that American jazz pianist, organist, composer, singer, you name it. He was even a a comedy entertainer. Fats Waller uh, died of pneumonia on a train trip right outside the city. But um, Fats Waller was an enormous, enormous figure in music before uh, the rock and roll era. And I mean, I've played a ton of his songs, but songs like Ain't Misbehavin', uh, Your Feet's Too Big. Do you know that song? Yeah, do you know who you know who covered your feet's too big? Uh who? The Beatles. Oh, did they? They did, yeah. Yeah, good version of it. And then the Reefer song, we've talked about that on this show before, but uh he was an interesting interesting guy and uh so this was the day that Fats Waller passed away on in 1943. And interesting history behind him too. He was uh kidnapped at gunpoint in Chicago <laughs> and driven to a club owned by Al Capone. And they ordered him uh, to be to perform, didn't they? And it was uh, a surprise birthday party for Capone. So that is a great story. Hey, listen, Capone's people loved him. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine though, just kidnapping oh him gosh. and saying, "Okay, you're playing," you know? 
And here's the question. What if he said no? <laughs> exactly. Well, I think they made him an offer he couldn't refuse, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, very, very influential figure. And uh, his name was actually Thomas Wright. He was the seventh of 11 children. He's from New York City, actually, but such an influential piano player. And, and uh, he, was, he was only one of, the f- one of five of those 11 to survive childhood, too. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Sad, yeah. Yeah, but uh, he worked with everybody, you know. He uh, and like I said, Rick and I perform uh, quite a few Fats Waller tunes. I, I really enjoy his stuff, and but the Reefer song is got to be, you know, one of the funniest tunes ever. His version that's he didn't write it, but his version of it is is absolutely hilarious. And it was actually banned in England. Um, what a shock! What a shock! <laughs> BBC banning something? Oh my gosh! <laughs> he was also he he started playing when he was six years old. Tony playing the piano, um, and then four years later, so he's ten now. He's playing organ at his father's church. Ten years old, like Billy Preston, kind of the same thing. Um, but what's interesting about Fats Waller is in 1938, he was one of the first African Americans to purchase a home in a section of St Albans, Queens, in New York City. And it was a community with a racially restrictive, you know, it was it was no blacks allowed. But he bought a house. And after he bought his house, and there was litigation in courts and all that, um, others followed, such as Count Basie, Lena Horne, Ella Fitzgerald, Mel Tinton. I mean, can you imagine? He, he broke down that barrier in a section of New York, which is now, you know, very diversified. But can you, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It is amazing, yeah. The, the redlining that went on, right, was uh, was terrible. Yeah, yeah, terrible. But thankfully, he had, the I guess, the, the, the star power to do it, and he did. Now, I have a feeling, because we're 1943, that our friend Bing Crosby is going to be on the charts. You know, I love Bing. But what's interesting, what's interesting, I thought, is that, you know, we talk about these days, you know, Drake having three in the top ten, or so-and-so having three in the top ten. Bing Crosby had three in the top five and he was only bested by a group from liverpool who had five of the top five and that happened 20 years later Mm -hmm. but um number five was bing crosby sunday monday or always which i love that song yeah that is a fantastic well i mean what song of bing's isn't fantastic to be honest classic classic uh glenn gray with my heart tells me was a number four bing crosby people will say we're in love I love this song. Number two, Bing Crosby and the Andrew Sisters with Pistol Pack and Mama. <laughs> Do you remember, remember when we talked about the Andrew Sisters? Yeah. I had no idea their catalog was so big. Huge. They were they were the biggest selling female band of all time until probably the 90s. Yeah, that is unbelievable, right? Because you just remember them from their wartime stuff. and. Oh, no, they, it's funny, because I was listening to a radio station last night here in Toronto called AM740, and they were talk, and they played um, Andrew Sisters, and they played about three songs. They said, all three of these made number one. And it's like, whoa, you know what I mean? And none of them were Christmas songs or just yeah. songs, right? Uh, and number one was the Mills Brothers with a song called Paper Doll. Yeah, you know, know what? That's a great song. Well, and you know who pushed the Mills Brothers was Bing Crosby. He used to have him have them on his show, and he was a big fan. I'm not saying they made number one because of Bing, folks, but there is a connection. And uh, I, I just recently, 
uh, bought a CD of two CD set of Mills Brothers greatest hits, and boy, oh boy, Tony, there's some great stuff on there. Yeah, no, uh, talented guys for sure. Yeah. Now, yep. if we jump ahead one year exactly, yeah, another big death in the music business, Glenn Miller, and this was. Uh, a little more publicized, but Glenn Miller was killed when his aircraft disappeared in bad weather. He was flying over the English Channel, and he was traveling to entertain U.S. troops in France during World War II. But Miller was huge uh, during wartime. You know, one of the biggest recording artists of the 40s, right? 23 number one hits. Unbelievable. But um, Midnight's, uh, you know, Moonlight Serenade, uh, In the Mood, Pennsylvania 65,000, Chattanooga Choo Choo, all these great songs. But uh, he, uh, they never found him. I don't think they ever have, have they? Well, what's interesting, no, they haven't. And what was interesting was that nothing was announced. The, the only way it came out, his disappearance was not, wasn't publicized until Christmas Eve 1944, which was a couple of weeks later. When the Associated Press announced Miller would not be conducting the scheduled BBC broadcast, but someone else was, a guy, a guy named uh, Technical Sergeant Jerry Gray. So, well, where's Glenn? Oh, yeah, well, he disappeared. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, that's amazing, right, that they were able to keep that under wraps. So what's today? Uh, this happened on the 15th of December. Yeah. So they, my goodness, like nine, nine days. Nine days they kept it under wraps. And, and no one knew. No, more than that. It's the 13th. Oh, my goodness. That's so they, they, it's just incredible that no one knew. It was just one of those things. That, and, and, they, and we're not, it would be, well, I was going to say it'd be like if Drake disappeared, but I mean, he does disappear. But I mean, I'm talking like he just, he just was gone and no one, but anyways, it's, it was, he was massively huge. And um, did I ever, did I ever tell you the, uh, because you mentioned this on Chattanooga Chushu, did I ever tell you the Roy Rogers, Dale Evans joke? No, what's that? So Roy Rogers uh, and Dale Evans go out camping one night, and Dale Evans bought these um, brand new shoes, and she put them outside the tent for the night. And when she wakes up in the morning, they're just chewed to hell. They're gone. They're just destroyed. So Roy, and you know, he he's very brave. He goes out. He looks for the animal that that uh, ate up the shoes. It turned out to be a, a cougar. So he shot the cougar, and he's bringing it back on on trigger. And Dale comes out of the tent and says. Pardon me, Roy. Is that the cat who chewed my new shoes? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love wordplay, by the way. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought you'd like that, Tony. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Well done. Thank you. So anyway. uh, we're one year ahead. The charts would have been pretty similar, I imagine. But uh, what was on Actually... There? Actually, they're very different. Oh, Although yeah? one band, one yeah, one band is back. That's the Mills Brothers. They're at number five with "You Always Hurt the One You Love." The Pied Pipers at number four with the Trolley Song. Number three was Russ Morgan, "Dance with a Dolly." I, I thought Dolly Parton wasn't born yet. Um, Dinah Shore was at number two with "I'll Walk Alone." Oh wow! Yep. You know, I didn't even know Dinah Shore was a singer until I was in my teens. I just thought she was a TV talk show host when I was a kid. And number one, the Ink Spots with Ella Fitzgerald, when a song that I forgot about and that I listened to last night because I remember how good it is. Into each life, a little rain must fall. Oh wow! Well, Ella Fitzgerald, what a voice, eh? Yeah, but with the Ink Spots, man, oh man, that's fantastic. Well, check it out on the Spotify playlist. Yeah, she's got quite a few little pop collaborations. Wasn't she the first uh, jazz artist to cover the Beatles as well? She, she was good. Hey, that was good, Tony. I'm wow. 
I, 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 I submit to you. That was no, yeah, <laughs> she was, she was. Well, with her covering the Beatles, she kind of legitimized them with the older crowd. Well, you know? a- absolutely. And you know the story. Uh, I don't know the the complete details, but I remember hearing about it. You know the connection between Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe. Vaguely, vaguely that Marilyn um, insisted. Now I'm trying to trying to remember the exact story, but Ella was playing at a segregated club, and and uh, Marilyn said she would show up uh, if they would give Ella the the prime spot, and if and uh, you know wouldn't treat her like they treated most black artists at the time and uh they caved in and Marilyn uh came every night and sat there and ella said she owed her career to uh Marilyn monroe just because of that gesture so that's that's pretty amazing that's very cool is what it is that's very cool for Marilyn. yeah i didn't know that i mean i knew bits of that yeah yeah i don't know the exact whole story but it just came to my mind i'm gonna have to look that up there's a famous photo though of the two of them uh sitting there together and uh Marilyn Monroe, I just listened to a podcast about her, a far more complicated person than, than most people give her credit for. You know? 100%. 100%. And she was actually a very bright woman. Yeah, incredibly she bright. Wasn't... Good writer. Uh, yeah. Very, very insightful. You know, just played that dumb blonde to a T and people uh, associated that with her, but it was not that way at all. Well, she played it too well. Yeah, exactly. She was that good of an actress. I mean, that's the, the sad part of it. Yeah. And that's not even talking about the Kennedy stuff, right? No, exactly. So we're going to stay on December 15th, but we're going to jump ahead to 1984. To, so 40 years. Yep, to one of the biggest Christmas songs ever. A huge, huge collaboration. So uh, shall we go to the UK, December 15th, 1984? Absolutely, I'd love to. Hey, maybe we'll get to have tea with the Queen if we're lucky. So there are very few moments like this, and this was one of the first, I think the first, where a lot of artists came together to record a song. So we're talking 1984. Of course, we're talking about Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. There had been been concerts, concerts for Bangladesh and such, where a lot of artists came together to perform for charity. This was a charity single where artists came together for charity for for Ethiopian refugees and starving Ethiopians. but what's significant is today, is that on this day in 1984, is it entered the British charts at number one. And I have to tell you, Tony, I worked in radio at the time, and I can tell you right now that we, we tried everything in the world to get that song so we could play it on our radio station before anyone else. Um, and I actually had a, a, a cousin-in-law type of thing or some relative who could had purulate it over to us. Um, people were going nuts trying to get this single because it came out in, in England before it came out here. But I remember the squirmish to get that song on the radio. It's called uh, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. Well, and look at the collaboration. I mean, Bob uh, Geldof from the Boomtown Rats, I mean, he put this thing together and he, you know, begged and, and cajoled and and in some cases lied and said that other people were committed just to get someone else to commit, you know, but like just a a who's who in the music business right you got members of duran duran spando ballet paul young culture club uh george michael sting bono phil collins paul weller oh oh like so many 
And and also, you know, sometimes we forget that Midge Year co-wrote the song and actually co-produced the song. And Midge let Bob take all the um, get all the attention because Midge. I don't know if you know Midge Year, but he's more down. Geldof is is very flamboyant. He, he's he's very talkative. He's very smart. I mean, I read his books. He's a genius, and I, I'm I'm a huge, huge, huge Geldof Boontown Rats fan, huge. But uh, Midge, Midge sometimes should get recognized too. So let's say, hey, Midge, thank you too for co-writing the song. Well, uh, absolutely. And I think you know, if, uh, it was probably a good decision for him to defer to Geldof for this because, like you say, you know, Bob was such a good spokesperson and uh, brought it right into the public's consciousness. And and man, I do remember that song exploded uh, when it came out. Oh, it's, it's, and, and the B-side of the single contained messages from the artists who performed on the record, plus David Bowie and Paul McCartney, who couldn't make it to the record. They recorded the song and mixed the song in one day. Um, and Bowie and McCartney just couldn't get to the studio to help out. And this was prior to, you know, nowadays, it was just simply recorded and emailed the track or whatever. But back then, they couldn't do that. There was a time element. Um, so if you listen to the B-side of the single, uh, called Feed the World. The song's called Feed the World. There's a really beautiful message from Bowie and McCartney. So it's quite good. Yeah, and it inspired, a, I mean, a couple of other uh, songs just like it, right? The the American one, uh, We Are the World. And mm-hmm. then and then Tears Are Not Enough, the Canadian one, which again had a had a big uh, big who's who singing that. I, I still remember Gordon Lightfoot uh, coming right in uh, near the beginning there. I thought that was pretty cool. Neil Young wrote that one, right? I think it was Neil Young, yeah. Yeah. There was the big it, flap over that. Do you remember there was a there was a big flap over Tears Are Not Enough because they used a sampled French horn sound as yes, opposed that's right. as opposed to getting a French horn player and the union was just up in arms and it was a big deal. I, I do remember that very, very clearly. Oh only a kid. <laughs> Exactly, because <laughs> I mean, you know, there's the, the, Phil Collins does the drumming on the single, but there's a lot of synthetic drums as well. <laughs> Who oh, cares? It's right. a great song, dude. They know it's Christmas. It's classic, right? But yeah, for sure. And this song, but the the British one shot right away to the top of the charts. And uh, I'm just looking at the stats here now, right? It, it, I mean, 3.8 million copies in the UK, 12 million worldwide, uh, raised 28 million, the equivalent of 28 million dollars amazing um but it in some people think the song hasn't aged well and uh that's kind of what we're talking about here aren't we is is has this song aged well or not the lyrics some people take a little bit of exception with the lyrics to the song do they what 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 part of the song tony well they're saying you know the whole idea that um you know do they know it's christmas like uh, almost the the white savior complex thing going on you know, I I don't think that was the intention. Quite I frankly. I don't think so either, but it's been getting a lot of press the last couple of years because of that. You know, and and um, I hope I just hope that it doesn't get cancelled, as they say, because it would be a shame. Because the intention was very very good, but but uh, I was listening to it a little while ago, and Cynthia pointed out to me too. She goes, "Man, those words are are a little." Um, questionable like for by today's standards right and uh i never really thought about it before then but uh since then i i've you know read quite a bit about that that the song is has not aged that well in terms of its lyrical content and yet it's been re-recorded 
so many times. And uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, they did a new version of it um, featuring Paul McCartney on bass, folks. Uh, I guess I, I could see that. I mean, I always liked certain lines, which I think are now held as in question. For example, I, I, I quite like when Bono comes in, you know, well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And it's a, a great, powerful line yep. that, that should stop you in your tracks and make you think, right? Because they're but for the grace of God. And yep. um, I, I, I guess, I don't know, but do you remember a couple of years ago, there was a big controversy over Baby It's Cold Outside? I'm not comparing the songs because no, they're very exactly. different songs. Again, which I'll give you my two cents on that whole controversy and this one. I think both of them are ridiculous. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you be clear? <laughs> uh, and, and I'll tell you why is because one of the, the things that happens with cancel culture is people don't look at any kind of gray, right? And the world is not a black and white place. We all know that. The world is a very gray, messy, muddy place. And it drives me nuts when, when a song like Baby It's Cold Outside, which was written with no ill intent, was designed to be cheeky. I mean, listen to uh, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald's version. Uh, it gets totally misinterpreted. And, and then all of a sudden, there's this big, huge push to have that song taken off the radio. And some radio stations caved in, sadly. Yeah, but then but CBC caved in, but then they put it back on. Yeah. So it's still, I mean, I hear, I heard it last night on the the station here that's playing Christmas music. I, I I agree, Tony, and I think sometimes we forget context. You know, we we need to put context back into place. And and uh, I think with do they know it's Christmas? You know, Geldof was trying to get a point across, and he he did it in his own language, which is how you I mean. It, I'm sure people probably have difficulty with I Don't Like Mondays, which is about a girl that goes into a school and shoots it up. I'm sure there's an issue with that song these days, too, right? Because, I mean, and when she was asked why she did it, it was because I Don't Like Mondays. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I still love the song. I, I think it's it's one of the songs. I, I know what Cynthia is saying. Andrew says the same thing. And sometimes there's some lyrics that are a bit, you kind of wince. But at the same time, you know, it takes me back to a time and place very quickly. And I gotta be honest with you, each and every one of those artists on that record, I just love, so. No, oh, me too. And and I, I like the song as well. And I think sometimes uh, the whole cancel culture movement takes things out of context. And that, that, yeah. is, that is the source of the problem. Now, I think uh, we should take a look. What was charting that in 1984 at that time? So in England, what was charting, which is interesting, was number five was Like a Virgin by Madonna. Okay. Number four was Paul McCartney and the Frog Chorus, We All Stand Together, which was never released in North America as a single. And it would go to number three, kept it at number one by, I'll tell you in a minute. Number three is Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Power of Love, which had been number one the week before. I love that song. Uh, Number two, Wham! Last Christmas, and that kept McCartney at number three because the top three singles stayed the same for about a month, which was We All Stand Together, Wham, Last Christmas, and Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas? And one of my favorite comments of all time was Paul McCartney saying, well, I don't mind being kept at a number one by Do They Know It's Christmas, but Wham? (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? We both were participating in the Last Christmas Challenge. Yeah, you beat me, though. You, you, You beat me. Yeah, I lasted about four days longer. And folks, if you don't know what that is, the Last Christmas Challenge is see how long you can go during the holiday season without hearing that song by Wham. Yeah, uh, you I, heard it in the grocery store, and I heard it while I was channel surfing in the car. My bad. See, I think I should be exempt because I had no control. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> 
But you know what? Let's uh, let's go back to the present, and we'll do our from Memphis to uh, Merseyside moment. What do you say? Sounds like a plan. So here we are back in 2021, and I always love talking about this segment, and uh, I think we've got a Beatles connection today, don't we? Yeah, we did Elvis last week, and I think, you know, we, we, and Elvis, we talked about Elvis earlier, but we're going to talk a bit about the Beatles, right? So what happened, Tony, is in 1961, the Beatles performed at the Cavern Club, which is nothing unusual because they performed there 296 times. Um, in Liverpool, and they played two shows, one at lunch, which they always did, and then one at night. But Decca Records had sent a guy named Mike Smith to watch the show and think about offering the Beatles a recording contract. But what he did do was he offered them a chance for um, an audition, which mm-hmm. they went on New Year's Day, New Year's Day, 1962, and auditioned for Decca Records. And the famous, famous quotation is that they got turned down and uh, they said to the Beatles manager, guitar bands are on their way out. Um, hmm. Yeah, the what? What do they call that? The biggest mistake in music history, right? One up, one up. <laughs> it's up. It's up there. It's up there. But but so the Beatles kind of did an unofficial audition for Decca Records. Pete Best was drumming at the time. Um, I, there's no recordings of the show, unfortunately. There's some recordings of the Beatles in the Cavern, which is quite interesting, but not many. Not many. Believe it or not, after all the amount of times they played, there not many recordings. No, but then, no, they're hard to find. Yeah. Well, I was talking to someone about this the other day. We were talking about how there's no film footage, really, of a lot of tours in the 70s of bands like Bowie or McCartney because people didn't have phones. No, that's right. And video cameras were so expensive. Right. Yeah, that's that. Can you believe this was episode 35? Where has the time gone, my friend? I don't know. You know, and I'm ready for another 35 times three. Oh, me too. Me too. At least, at least, at least. Absolutely. But we've got something special next week. I know we both love Christmas, so we're going to be doing a special Christmas episode. We can't really say more than that, can we? No, we have to listen. It's like a Christmas cracker. You have to open it to see what's inside. Well, that's right. And uh, (laughs) it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it, I promise. Yeah, there won't be any any bad jokes in there, I promise. (laughs) So, folks, thanks for allowing us into your headphones once again. And Aaron, we're pulling up to your place so i'll drop you off here and do the uh, four-hour drive back to ottawa (laughs) i appreciate it i do i do so i'm not going through kingston though because uh, i was listening on the news and i guess kingston is COVID central right now oh is it yeah that's yeah i would avoid it go go via montreal (laughs) (laughs) the long way the long way home yeah well that's right (laughs) But uh, have a good week, my friend, and I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast.
Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine podcast is a Stewie Tunes production.